When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Didn't squeak that time. That's good, right? <laughs> Somehow we figured it out. Um, well, thank you, Brother Bart. I really appreciate you coming and leading us today. I know that we all were greatly benefited by that, and so we appreciate you, Brother. Now, um, with this passage here today, First Peter 1, 13 through 16, it will be a bit helpful to have your handout. I, I know that I've as I've outlined it, the scriptures don't always come to us uh, in a way that is very easy to outline. And so as you're thinking through some of the points here that uh, you can make and trying to summarize the section that we have, uh, uh, there seems to be uh, points that are often repeated, and that should come as no shock because it's a letter and often we repeat, we repeat ourselves. And so as you think through the scriptures that are listed on the individual outline points, you'll see that uh, there is some of them are disconnected, and so just uh, hold on to that as you're as you're as we're talking through the passage today, and that'll be a helpful guide to you that will help um, uh, help you keep track of where we're at. And so it may feel a bit like we're jumping around in these verses, and that's because we are. <laughs> and so we're trying to summarize a few things at once here uh, today. And so as you see, the subject that we're going to be talking to talking about today is this. Uh, call to holiness that we all uh, have as Christians. Uh, so as uh, God, uh, if we are saved, God has called us to a particular task, and it's important that we understand what that task is. Now, um, I know that Pastor Kevin and myself have, have been looking for a worship leader for uh, quite some time now, and I know that uh, Pastor Kevin used this uh, example in one of his sermons uh, uh, but I'm going to use it for this one as well because I thought it's particularly helpful for what we're talking about. But as we've been looking for a uh, worship leader, I think since the time I got here, so it's been maybe about a year now of searching for a worship leader, and it's proved to be more difficult than we originally imagined, uh, in particular, to find a worship leader who uh, believes in hell, for instance. I mean, I think that we were a bit surprised that uh, the difficulty we've been finding in uh, uh, finding a, a solid biblical worship leader. And, and so one of the conversations that we had with the particular individual, I'll go ahead and try to share some of those details, and I won't share his name, uh, but we, we, uh, we'll make up a name for him. No, <laughs> uh, we, we, um, we were talking with one individual, and we, um, as you're, you're talking to people, you, you, you come to realize that you really don't know a whole lot about people. Uh, I, I try to assume that I know absolutely nothing about the people that I talk to, whether in counseling, whether just meeting people. I, I don't like to make a whole lot of assumptions, and so I just um, I try to ask as many questions as possible so that I don't take for granted uh, anything. And so, I, I you know, the, the rule is don't assume, ask, right? And so one of the things that we, uh, we were asking this individual when we were speaking with him uh, we, we asked him, well, explain the gospel to us and explain, um, first of all, explain the gospel. And then if, uh, you know, if I were to ask you, what must I do to be saved? Give me an answer to that. And so just try to answer it in a twofold way. And so as we're uh, talking to one, one of these individuals, um, the, you say, well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus did. Jesus came and he, uh, he, he. Uh, he uh, saved us uh, from our sins. And so, okay, all right. So what, what are we saved from, right? 
So that sounds good. It sounds orthodox. It sounds right. Jesus, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. He's come to save us from our sins. All right, fair enough. Great. All right, so don't want to make any assumptions. What did he save us from? Well, you know, before he saves us, we're separated from him. Okay, great. All right, so what happens if we remain separated from him, right? So, uh, well, we just won't have a good relationship with him. We'll, uh, you know, we're separated from him. He kept, kept on repeating that phrase. We're separated from him. You know, we just won't have a good relationship with him, from him. And I, I got, we got the feeling as we're talking to him that, the, you know, what are we saved from? The big deal is that, you know, emotional pain, uh, psychological unwholeness. Uh, you, you, you couldn't really get a feel for what it is, but uh, this phrase separated from God just kept on coming up. And so after hearing the phrase separated from God a, num- a n- number of times, now I know that there's some truth to that, right? I know that, there, you know, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they're cast out of Eden away from the presence of the Lord. And so there's a break in the relationship. They don't have a favorable relationship to God anymore. And so there's a physical distancing uh, that's pictured and then a relational break that's pi- pictured. But then uh, I really got the, the feeling that that's all that he thinks. I mean, there's nothing more to it than that. And so at some point I, I asked him, well, do you believe in a literal hell where if people die apart from the Lord, they'll burn forever and ever for eternity? Do you believe that? And then I think we were both shocked when the answer was no. No, I don't believe that. Uh, you know, that's well, what do you do with the passages which talk about that? Well, that's above my pay grade, he said. And so um, we thought, well, okay. Uh, uh, and, and you, you know, I, I think it's, that's the sort of error that comes with, uh, there's a lot of other errors, errors associated with that. And so it's not just like, well, uh, one strike you're out, that's a bad answer, so we're not going to consider you. But then we, I think we noticed in the conversation that there's a certain view of Scripture and uh, that was there and that was just symptomatic of that uh, error. But then as, as we're talking to him, though, uh, I think he was, I mean, he was a little bit upset with us for asking all these crazy questions. And so uh, at some point, though, he said, well, Tim, you know, if you could describe God in one word, what would you say? And I, 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 I've interacted with people long enough to know what word I'm supposed to say, okay? So I know what word I'm supposed to say, but then that's just not the right answer, okay? And so, uh, you know, in answer, trying to answer that question, I mean, one, I think it's a very unwise thing to do to try to summarize God in one word. I mean, God, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, the infinite God tried to summarize him with one, one word? I don't think so. I don't think we can do that anyways. But, uh, and so that's what I said. I don't think we can do that. But if, you, if you're going to press me, you're going to press me and say, well, come up with a word to describe God in one word. What, what would I use? Well, I think there's only one word to say, and it's holy. Now, as the, I mean, you see this, uh, you could, I mean, I think that point is demonstrated in a variety of ways. If you, if you think about the way the Bible speaks about God, particularly I'm thinking of Isaiah uh, 6.3. You may want to write that down. I don't know that we'll go there. Uh, but then Revelation 4.8 um, these are two passages to think about, but you know that holy is the only word in the Bible that is used to describe God uh, by uh, three times in a row. So, I mean, you, you know, uh, as he's saying, well, what word would you use to describe God? I'd say holy. And he's like, well, no, that's obviously the wrong answer. It's love. He's love. Well, the problem is he's not described as love, love, love. He's described as holy, holy, holy. And so if you want me to say uh, what in the scripture is presented, what, what in the scripture, what kind of... Uh, attribute of God is presented almost as the chief attribute of God, I'm going to say holy, because 
Uh, that's what the angels seem to say. And they're the ones who are always around him and are in closest proximity to him uh, and, and see and experience him on a regular basis in a way that we don't. And so as you look at the way that the angels describe him, they're falling on their face. They're, they're hiding their face, refusing to even look at him. And then they say, holy, holy, holy. And so I think, I think we're safer. The point is, I think we're, uh, we're on surer ground to say God is, uh, if there's anything more central to his character, it's holiness. And so now, if that's true, and I believe it is, um, with all the qualifications I just mentioned, uh, uh, noting the difficulty of uh, encapsulating God in a word, uh, if, if, uh, if it is true that if there's any word that seems to picture God in the most direct way, that would be the word holiness, then uh, it, we ought to understand what the word means, Right? It would do us well to think through what does this word mean. And as you read through this passage today, it says uh, in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy as I am holy. Uh, If we're also responsible to mimic God in this way, it's important to know what we're mimicking, right? And so there's plenty of things that we can't... uh, um, Theologians talk about the uh, communicable communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. And so the incommunicable, incommunicable attributes of God are those that uh, you can't mimic, right? And so, uh, for instance, God's omniscience. Well, I can't kind of, um, no matter how hard I try, I cannot be a faithful representation of that attribute. I'm simply limited in my knowledge. So uh, it's just not possible. So I can't copy him in that way, right? I mean, I can't copy his omniscience. I can't uh, um, copy him and his omnipotence, his uh, all-powerful uh, nature. No, no matter how hard I try, and this is uh, been being made increasingly known to me the older I get, uh, so uh, there seemed to be a blindness to this fact early on in life that has quickly vanished. Uh, but um, So there's attributes you can't copy of God. Those are called incommunicable attributes. But then there's ap- attributes of God that you can. And holiness is one of those that we ought to copy. So if we're responsible to be holy as God is holy, and, and, and if God, uh, by those who are in closest proximity to him, describe him as holy, 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 the point is we better know what the word means, right? So uh, what we'll do today then is spend a few minutes talking about a definition. So I don't want to get to the end of the passage before we define what we're talking about. Uh, so we're going to start on the front end, just define the word holy, and then as we think through the passage, which is pointing to uh, this climax of being holy as God is holy, then we'll, we'll have the, the original thought in our mind at the beginning, if that makes sense. So go ahead and turn to Leviticus 11, uh, 43 through 47, and we'll try to speak to this issue of a definition of holiness. What does the word holy mean? Now, uh, there's a variety of words that I think we use and you kind of slip in and out of. So if you were to describe what does it mean to be holy, you'll say it means to be, uh, you may say it means to be morally pure. You may say it means to be set apart. You may say it means to be devoted. And so I think we often kind of go back and forth between all those options and just kind of without thinking uh, but I think the primary sense of what it means to be holy, holy is this idea of being consecrated or devoted. Uh, so that's, the, I think, if there is a root idea to the idea of holiness, it's this idea of being devoted to specific use. So maybe you write that down. That's important. But as you get to Levitic, Leviticus eleven forty three through 47, uh, Moses 
God says, uh, you shall not make for you. You shall not make yourself detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not devour yourself with them and become unclean through them. For the text says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate. Now, that's the word, the same word that we're going to see later on. So, consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. So, basically, in Hebrew, what that reads is, holify yourself. <laughs> if you, I mean, it's the same word. Holify yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Like, basically, it's just, the same word, those three words, uh, consecrate, uh, be holy, and holy, those are all the same word. So consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about the beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction so notice this, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eating, eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. And so in this passage, what you see is this idea of uh, making a distinction between... You see several ideas come to the forefront. You see this, this idea of distinguishing between clean and unclean things, this idea of not defiling yourself with unclean things. Uh, why should you not defile yourself with unclean things? Uh, because you should be holy, just as the Lord God is holy. And so, uh, as you're thinking through the way the Bible presents this idea of holiness, there's a lot of different pictures in the Bible of, of, uh, that are meant to be lessons for us so that we can learn more and more about this concept of holy. So, um, just to run through some scriptural uh, ideas, uh, scriptural things that are described as holy. You know the Sabbath day is described as holy? What does that mean? means it's consecrated, it's devoted to a specific use, right? So uh, the Sabbath day is uh, described as uh, the holy day. So God will often use the word, my holy day. Right. Uh, God, that uh, ground that God is uh, particularly uh, uh, mani- uh, manifesting his presence, if you ignore the awkward use of the word manifest there. Uh, the, uh, there is ground that God is said to uh, particularly dwell in, and that ground is often described as what? Holy ground, right? So when Moses comes to see God on the burning bush, he says, take your sandals off. Why? Well, because this ground is holy, right? And so uh, there's uh, the, the people of Israel are described as a holy assembly. Uh, now, after Moses delivers the people of Israel uh, from Egypt, he brings them into the holy, what is it? Holy land, right? So a holy land. Now, um, does that mean that... Uh, what does that mean about the land? Does that mean that the land is uh, morally pure? Or does it mean that, it mean that the land is um, particularly uh, devoted to a specific purpose, right? Uh, Israel is described as a holy nation. Now, there's also holy things in the Bible that are related to the tabernacle and the temple. So, think about the holy place, the most holy place, the holy garments, holy gifts, holy offerings, holy, holy crown, holy bread, holy altar, holy anointed oil, uh, holy incense, right? So you have all these items in the temple, the clothing, the things that they use. They're all holy. They're all described as holy. What does that mean? Devoted to a particular purpose, doesn't it? Um, now, uh, through the holiness codes, so that's um, ba- uh, basically in the in the Old Covenant law, you have a list of uh, things that the Israelites are not allowed to do. So they're not allowed to eat certain food. Uh, they're not allowed to touch certain things like dead bodies. In order to do so, it would render them unclean, right? 
And so there's this big deal in the Old Testament about being clean versus being unclean. Well, what was the point of all that? Was it just cleanliness is godliness? Was that the point? No, that wasn't the point. The point was to teach them um, uh, to teach them to learn to identify uh, things which defile and things which don't defile. Right. Uh, so they they were to learn a physical lesson so that they can apply that lesson uh, spiritually. And so we often, you know, you also, you can talk at this point about how muscle memory works. So if you play a sport, for instance. It really doesn't matter what sport you play, but just think about any sport you do. Uh, you do. You go through a series of motions. If you're talking about bowling, you just you, you bowl over and over and over again. At first, you have to really concentrate on what you're doing because you don't really know what you're doing, and you're trying to think through the awkward way your body's moving in order to get the right result. Uh, but then after a while, you don't think about it anymore. It's almost as if you go through the motion. It's been trained into your muscle memory uh, such that the ball does what you want it to do, and it's almost... By rote, you don't even think about it anymore. I mean, the same. If you think about any, I mean, think about if you were to play sports and you really had to calculate angles of shooting a basketball in order. You, no one does that. You don't do that. You don't think, oh, I gotta get it this. Way. And then you don't have your little uh, uh, right angle thing there to do that. You don't. No one does that. You. It's muscle memory. You do it enough times, and and it comes natural. Well, the point of this is uh, what God wanted them to do was to. Uh, get used to a pattern of identifying clean versus unclean so that it come by rote, by rote memory, so that when it came to spiritual matters, they would respond just like they did in physical matters. Understand? Uh, so uh, now, similarly, the laws concerning the holy things, the Israelites were meant to learn, like the holy things in the temple, the uh, Israelites were meant to learn the difference between the sacred and the common. So in learning these habits, the Israelites were meant to understand that they were devoted vessels, and should not defile themselves with sin. And so as you think about this basic idea of being holiness, uh, of holiness, what you, what you ought to think about is this idea of being devoted or, uh, uh, de- devoted or consecrated to a specific purpose or function. Uh, and so as we think about this call to holiness that we find in the Bible, what we come to understand is that God used a variety of means to help the Israelites come to understand the concept of holiness in order that they may be repelled by all manifestations of sin. So just like you're uh, repelled at the thought of eating an unclean animal, you ought to be repelled uh, at the notion of sinning against God, whether in thought, in deed, or in action. And so in uh, going through all these elaborate rituals, they were meant to teach them purpose about what it means to be devoted to God if the entirety of their being. So mind, body, soul, heart, everything needed to be devoted to God. Now, as Christians, as I've said, we are called to battle for holiness. So as Christians, we're, we're called to be devoted to God with the entirety of our being. You understand? Now, this passage, uh, the first thing we'll learn as we go, walk through this passage in First Peter is the basis for the battle. Uh, and what is the basis for our battle for being devoted to God in all things? Yeah, well, the basis is all that God has done for believers in Jesus Christ, isn't it? So, our passage today begins with a therefore. And anytime you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. Uh, and we preachers have an, an awkward habit of beginning our sermons with therefore. <laughs> and so, but whenever we do, it, it's meant to point our, point our attention back to what has preceded uh, the passage. 
And so as you think about every, what is this therefore point itself to, the therefore we find in verse 13, well, it points back to everything you see from 3 to 12. So what do th- verses 3 to 12 do? Well, verses 3 to 12 celebrate what God has done for believers in Jesus Christ, featuring the saving work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, emphasizing the certain inheritance of believers in verse 3 to 5, focusing on their love and joy in God, verse 6 through 9, and highlighting how privileged they are to live in the days when God's promises are being fulfilled, verses 10 through 12. And so this is a common theme that you find throughout the Bible, that we act on the basis of what God has done for us. And so if you think about uh, any number of books that you may read in the New Testament, they don't just begin with do this and, and don't do that, do they? You know, when Paul writes a letter, the first thing that comes to his mind is not typically, hey, stop doing this and start doing this. Because the, the whole of the Christian life is a list of do's and don'ts. It doesn't really work that way, does it? Well, why? Well, because Jesus came to give us eternal life. And what is that? That we may know God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. What is the fundamental problem of the garden? Fundamental problem of the garden is that man has rejected his maker and is therefore uh, has a damaged relationship with him, right? And so the, the hope of the gospel is the hope that Jesus Christ has come and who has entered into history and has restored uh, a relationship with us and God. We've been reconciled through the blood of the lamb, the, the scriptures say. So as you think about the... The hope of the good news is that we can have a restored relationship with this person. And so if we do have a restored relationship with this person, if we are thankful for all that he's done for us, if we are thankful for the salvation that he has provided for us in Jesus Christ, if we, do, if we are the sorts of people uh, who come to see him as good and loving and wise and caring and, and gracious to us because he's forgiven us a sin debt that we could never pay, if you see all those things, you ought to want to live for him. Why? Well, you ought to want to live for him out of love for what he's done for you, right? Uh, first of all, but then you also ought to live for him because if you actually know who he is, you, you come to realize that he's a lot smarter than you, right? <laughs> and so, um, you, you know, uh, as you think about God's commands, they're not meant for your evil, they're meant for your good. And the temptation of the Christian life is to think that God is somehow uh, incompetent and he doesn't know what's best for us. Uh, that's the temptation that sinful humans face living in the world, uh, whenever we sin, what are we doing? We're functionally telling God that he's an idiot, right? Because he doesn't know what he's talking about. That our way is better than his way. We say, well, I know that I'm supposed to, I know that I'm supposed to, uh, you know, honor you by going to church, but, uh, you know, my job won't allow it. And so, I mean, how am I going to provide for it? And so functionally, what you do is you just say, hey, God, I don't really care what you say. Uh, there's a pragmatic way to do things uh, that uh, you're not thinking about, right? And so I won't obey your commands because it doesn't make sense to me financially. Or you can just think about any number of things, ways in which we sin against the Lord. Uh, you, you sin against the Lord through um, your relationships. You say, well, I know that you say that the good is to have a committed uh, relationship to a woman, right? I know that you say that's the good, and the good life is to uh, rejoice in the wife of your youth all the days of your life. And so um, that is pictured as the good and that uh, having an affair or being sexually unfaithful or looking at pornography, that those things are uh, described as evil. Uh, But then, um, but, you know, this this relationship's hard work (laughs) and it doesn't always go like I think it should go. And it's, it's difficult and it's hard. And so I know that you say that sexual immorality is bad, but it's easy and it's quick and 
it's good and isn't that the good life? Well, whenever you choose that way, what you're saying is God's incompetent. He's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing, right? Uh, and so uh, as you, th- the main point, though, is the basis for our battle is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so you don't just find in Scripture a list of commands that are divorced from this relationship. God's commands only make sense in the context of his character. Uh, he is a good God. He is a wise God. He has won for us a salvation in Jesus Christ. On the basis of all those things, we love him because he first loved us. And so, therefore, on the basis of what all that God has done for believers in Christ Jesus, we are to be holy as he is holy. Uh, so, the basis of this battle is, first, the things that God has uh, done for believers in Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the therefore. But then also, as I've been talking about, the uh, second basis for this battle is the character of God text says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, um, there's really no one who's more God-centered than God. So if you think about uh, God's chief objective in the world, God's chief objective isn't in the world isn't just to uh, bring you eternal happiness and uh, temporary happiness and fix all your problems. And I mean, if you really think about God's most pressing and chief priority, it's not just to give you an easy life so that you don't have to stress and worry and you don't have to, uh, and that you can just cope and, you know, everything else. I mean, God's chief priority in the world is not you, it's Him. It's His glory, right? Uh, God has set forth a plan before the foundation of the world in order to, uh, the, the primary reason that He has given for this plan is that He may glorify Himself. And so God's chief priority is himself and not us. And so we benefit from this plan of glorifying him uh, because the good life is, also, is uh, certainly found in glorifying him. Uh, and there are benefits from being a part of this plan that God has for the salvation of the world. And certainly in making this plan before the foundation of the world, God uh, did so on the basis of his great love for us. But uh, you know, just as it, it is a sin for us to get our priorities out of order it would be wrong for God to get his priorities out of order, right? So what are we instructed to do? Well, first we're instructed, the first great commandment is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Um, the second great commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we often teach children, God first, others second, yourself last, right? Well, with God, it's God first, <laughs> right? So, um, so God's chief priority is he, him first, and then others. <laughs> and so for him, uh, that, that's right in a way that it would be wrong for us. Uh, so uh, as you see, the basis of our battle, first, all that God has done for believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, so on the basis of that, we are to be holy. Second, on the basis of the character of God, as we've said, this is one aspect of God's character that we can mimic. This is one aspect of God's character that we can copy. Uh, unlike many other aspects of his character or attributes. And the second main thing we see in this passage is the location of this battle. So if we're going to fight for holiness, if that's what we're talking about, uh, a call to battle, called to holiness, how do you fight for, bol- for holiness? Well, one of the things you need to recognize is the battle for holiness is found in the heart. And so the text says in 1 Peter 1.13, the first part, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So, uh, therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being uh, sober-minded. Now, um, the location of this battle is in the heart. Now, when you hear pursue holiness, what comes to mind? 
Like, think about that for a second. All right, I'm going to tell you, pursue holiness. What are you thinking? You don't have to tell me, but I mean, just think. Think of something. Get something in there. And so, uh, uh, I imagine for many when you say pursue holiness, when I say that, pursue holiness, uh, that phrase, pursue holiness, is roughly equivalent to the idea of behavior modification. In other words, what I mean by that, uh, when we think of pursuing holiness, we typically think of a list of bad behaviors that we need to quit doing. Is that the first thing that comes to mind? Like you think about some bad thing you're doing that you need to stop doing. Or uh, maybe, maybe you even think of the opposite would be some good things that you should do, right? Uh, but then typically, when you think about this idea of holiness, it's, I imagine what immediately comes to mind is a certain list of behaviors. Or maybe you, you think of like a, a list of big sins that you need to avoid. So fornication is bad. We don't use that word anymore. Uh, we call it making love or something like that. But um, we, fornication, that maybe we used to use that word and we would say that's bad. So if I say pursue holiness, you say, well, don't do that, right? Uh, don't, have adult, don't commit adultery. Adultery is bad, right? Um, uh, don't, uh, don't steal something really big. <laughs> right? I mean, the, you know, it's okay to cheat on your taxes and all that because that's understandable and no one's going to know. Uh, but then, like, just don't do the real big stuff. Just don't get caught doing it, right? I mean, so just think of something real. Because it would be really bad to get caught, right? But then, uh, you know, uh, so... You don't want to be one of those guys on the news who's embarrassed yourself and your family and you're in church because you're on the news for uh, some big corporate fraud scandal, right? So don't be that guy. So I say pursue holiness. Don't be that guy, right? Uh, Or maybe, uh, you know, like the list, you maybe think of whatever the big sins are uh, currently. uh, Those are changing now. It seems like the big, big list of big the, the, the worst sin is to be judgmental. Don't ever be judgmental or don't discriminate. Yeah, because that's bad. Like we don't want to discriminate against anyone, right? Except for those who discriminate. So, because uh, that's hateful. So, uh, just don't do the, those. Are the big things now? And you know, who cares about the sex stuff anymore? Uh, just don't discriminate and don't be rude and don't be mean and uh, be tolerant. And anytime anyone uh, uh, says they hurt your feelings, you apologize. And that's how it goes. All right. So, um, the big big sins. Don't do those things. Uh, or often, maybe it's like the uh, like a list of. Sins that other people commit, right? And so, typically, you know, we can be really passionate about, like, uh, you know, pursue holiness, man. Uh, well, what are you thinking? Well, you're thinking of all the things they're doing wrong, the things you hate, the things that they're doing, the things that maybe you, I mean, you never do. Um, uh, for instance, I mean, just like a homosexuality. I know if we're, as conservative Christians, we can say, well, hey, be holy, you know. Like, what does that look like? Well, not being a homosexual. And... Um, we ought to speak against that sin, but then it, we ought to speak against that sin loudly and clearly, but you have to understand something. Uh, it's easier to say that when you don't struggle in that way, isn't it? So uh, my, my point is when you think about pursuing holiness, uh, it could be that maybe you have a list of things that come to your mind that your wife needs to do. Or uh, if your wife, it could be that you have a list of things that come to mind about what your husband needs to do. Or if your parents, it could be that uh, you have a list of things that come to mind that your kids need to do. Uh, but then uh, this text is speaking to you. It's not speaking, I mean, it's speaking to them too. But I mean, first and foremost, it's speaking to you, right? Uh, but one of the things that was remarkable, as I said, um, even though I think when you, when you hear pursue holiness, the idea of behavior modification or stop doing this, start doing this, you get a list of behaviors that typically come to mind. Uh, what, the striking thing about the passage is that the battle begins, the battle of the Christian life begins in the heart, right? 
So what does the text say? Preparing, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's the first thing that comes to mind to Peter. If you're to be holy as, as God is holy, what is the first thing that comes to mind to Peter? All right, well, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Uh, the, uh, so you have like this uh, aspect of the, the heart, the mind that comes to the forefront. And so the text literally, literally reads, gird up the loins of your mind. That's what it says. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, what is that? Well, we don't wear robes anymore. Um, like if you're a man, unless I guess you're a frat boy or something, you go to a toga party. I've never done that because that would be bad. That would be a big sin that you shouldn't do. But uh, And they need to quit doing that, right? Uh, but um, just, I mean, we don't wear the robes anymore, right? Uh, but then the idea of if, if you just, well... I want you to picture me having a robe, but I don't. So, but then if you did, um, just picture taking the robe up and then tying the, the robe around your leg so that it's, you, you tie a knot basically and tuck it in your belt and then your legs are free. And so the uh, soldiers would do this before they went into battle because the last thing you want to do if you're going to go into a battle is, I mean, you want to look good before the battle, but then once the battle starts, you need to gird up your loins. So that, uh, so uh, the issue then is that you don't want to trip on the dress, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the point. <laughs> so um, now um, that's what it means to gird up your loins. So you tie the thing up, you stick it in your belt, so that you're ready for action, you're ready to work, you're ready to fight, uh, whatever the uh, cause may be. And so really, it's kind of a battle imagery or hard work imagery. Uh, now. Um, Today, I mean, uh, I, I, most men don't wear dresses. Uh, well, I don't know if we can say that. Well, most, we'll say most. Most men don't wear dresses. Um, now, but um, today, I mean, if you, you know, if someone were to really want to fight me right now, and they were a gentleman about it, then they would give me time to roll up my sleeves, right? <laughs> That's what they would do. Or, or if I was wearing a tie, I could take off my tie. I would say, all right. All right, I see this can't be avoided. I've offended you. You're going you're gonna to come after me. All right, let me take the tie off. Let me roll up my sleeves. So, But that's what you would do if you're wanting to prepare yourself for work, right? They may or may not let you do that. and uh, They may see the tie as a functional choking device and say, no, I'm not going to let you take that off. I'm going to come after you, right? No. But if they were gentlemen, they would give you time. So... Um, uh, but but that would be uh, an example of today what we would do in that kind of situation. And so if you're, um, you know, maybe roll up the pant legs or roll up your sleeves or take your tie off. Uh, that's what uh, Paul is talking about here. Now, uh, we, we don't walk, uh, live in a culture that uh, where you walk around wearing a robe. All right. But um, just to give you an example of this, of how this works, uh, you're talking about getting ready for a fight. This fight begins in the mind. Um, and so how does this relate? Well, when I, I did appliance delivery for a while, and um, at first it's kind of intimidating to think about, like, moving 400-pound refrigerators into houses that are full of stairs. And, uh, you know, in Birmingham it wasn't really um, a very easy place to move appliances because you had these big driveways that were almost vertical, and so you had to somehow get these huge refrigerators uh, into these houses and up and down these stairs, and it was just... Uh, the elevation changes were nice to look at, but terrible to deliver appliances into. Uh, but then at, at a certain point, um, I had a, a large African-American trainer 
with a few teeth in his mouth. I mean, I think about three. And, his, and he, uh, he was looking at me, and I'm just a short little guy, and my partner, who was another short little white guy, and, and he, he was preachy. He was preachy, okay? So as he's training us, he was telling us, he, we need to get our mind right. You need to get your mind right. And he'd be yelling at us. He would yell at us and tell us, you need to get your mind right. And so what he meant by that was, uh, now you're going to go into some situations where the, you're going to go into some situations where you're delivering an appliance where it looks crazy and it looks insane. And you're going to think to yourself, there is no way you're going to get that big 400 pound refrigerator into that little door. Or, you know, and up, that st- and, and up that series of steps that they have there. And there's just no way that you're going to do that. But what you have to do is you have to get your mind right, is what he would say. Uh, and, and what you have to tell yourself is, that refrigerator is going into that house. Okay? Uh, that refrigerator is going to go into that house, no matter how impossible it looks. You have to, you know, you have to get your mind right. And, and um Later on, I saw the wisdom in what he was saying because I would work with other people. And, you know, they would look at this impossible situation and then they would just, uh, they would just stand there. And then they would be looking around and they're like, there's no way that this is going to happen. And then they would, they would literally spend 20, 30 minutes like thinking about all the ways that this can't be done. That, that they can't get this refrigerator into the house. And then they would come up with some excuse about why they're not going to be able to do it. And then they would refuse to deliver it. And so I, but then, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned from, uh, from this guy is that, hey, it's going in there. You're going to figure out how to go in there. And, and so what you need to do is get your mind right. Uh, understand that you're in for a battle. Uh, get ready and go and do it. And so uh, that was probably one of the most helpful things I learned in appliance delivery. And and what that resulted in functionally is there wasn't this 30-minute delay in me figuring out if I wanted to do it or not. (laughs) Uh, And then coming up with some kind of lie that uh, uh, involves me not trying to get out of what I have to do. Well, the same thing. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the behavior is related to the thinking, doesn't it? I mean, you had individuals who, um, uh, who their thoughts... We're uh, hopeless, can't happen, not going to work. You had individuals like that who ended up not successfully completing the task. And then you have other individuals who are thinking it has to be done. Uh, Come up with a plan. Let's try this. If that doesn't work, let's try that. And, and, you know, you save a lot of time. You get done a lot faster. I mean, you would think not delivering the thing. You would think that by not delivering the thing, you could get done with your day quicker than by delivering it. But I think... uh, our groups, we learned that we got done a lot faster than them, and we actually did all of our stops <laughs> uh, because our mind, our thinking was right. And so um, the same thing is true like, in the secular realm is true in the Christian realm. Uh, we, God has called us to a battle, and we could spend the majority of our time fighting that battle internally in our minds and acting like, oh, it's going to be so hard. Oh, it's so hard to you talk to my wife. Oh, it's so hard. Uh, men are from uh, Mars. Women are from Venus. You know, I mean, it's just impossible. Women, they're crazy, right? I mean, who, who's to understand them? Now, you can think that way, all right? You can think that way, and that's what the world wants to teach you to think. Oh, you can't understand women uh, because they're so complicated and, and everything else, and they're emotional and whatever. Now, uh, but what does the Bible say? Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. What does that mean? God holds you responsible to understand her. 
You can't just cop out and say, oh, it's impossible. And then spend the rest of your marriage, like, refusing to actually do that, right? I mean, you can't, I mean, you can, I mean, functionally, plenty of people do that. Uh, But my point, though, is that uh, God's called you to holiness. And so you can spend your whole time uh, letting these uh, crazy thoughts run into your mind that says, oh, it's impossible. Oh, it's unrealistic. Oh, if you knew the woman I was married to, oh, whatever. I mean, you can, you can do that, but then that functionally is going to result in you not actually understanding her. Right? I mean, the same thing is true on the other end. Oh, it's so hard to submit to a husband. Oh, you don't know my husband. I mean, he's so hard to submit to. Well, not, look, we need to quit joking about it. We need, we need to quit joking about how it's just so hard to submit to a husband or understand a wife or love a wife. or You know, it's just not a joke. I mean, God's called us to do it. We need to get our mind right, right? That's what we need to do. Because why? Because the battle for holiness begins in the mind, right? The battle for holiness begins in the heart. Uh, similarly... Uh, you see this uh, other phrase. Uh, there's two aspects here. So the battle for holiness begins in the heart. So the text picks up on this issue of thinking. But then the text also picks up on this issue of the passions. So the, the passions are the realm of the desires or feelings. So look at First Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So look at, think about this word passions or the realm of the desires and feelings. And so with this word, uh, do not be conformed. What you get is uh, basically su schematizo, su schematizo. And so uh, that's the English. We get the English word schematic from that, if you understand. So don't be conformed to the passions of your former uh, ignorance. Don't be conformed to the su schematizo of your former ignorance. Do not be, uh, or do not be su schematizo to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't be conformed. Don't, don't let the passions of your form, former ignorance become a schematic. You know, that may be one way to try to get your mind around what's happening. Now, um, we um, we live in a culture and a society that thinks that the passions and the desires and the feelings are off limits. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who seem to believe that they are completely and totally unaccountable to their feelings and to their passions. Can't do anything about them. Can't touch them. Can't criticize them. Hey, I just feel the way I feel. I can't help the way I feel. I just that's the way I feel. I mean, and I know it's not right the way I feel, but I mean, it's just the way I feel. And you know, what do you do with that? Because that's the way I feel, right? Well, uh, look. Do you think that the four-year-old boy who feels that he is not a boy but a girl is accountable to his feelings? Do you have anything to say to him, to that little four-year-old boy who thinks that he's a girl? Is he accountable to his feelings? Does his feelings need to be brought in light of, uh, in line with reality? Now, as a culture and as a society, we would. The reason why we have such a big problem with this is because, uh, first of all, we've accepted the idea that our feelings are just off limits. We give everyone a pass for their feelings, regardless of how godly they are, regardless of how ungodly they are, regardless of how many false assumptions those feelings are based on, regardless on how many, uh, regardless of how many lies those feelings, those desires, those passions are based on. Uh, they can be based on all kinds of lies and misunderstandings and gossip, uh, but then you've got to give people a pass because they can't help the way they feel, right? Well, that boy can't help the way he feels either under that logic. So what do we say? Feels like he's a girl. Why can't he be a girl? Oh, God told him not to? Well, God told him, uh, God tells us, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What does that mean? That means that you're held accountable to your desires. So the world that you live in is going to want to uh, produce in you certain passions, certain desires, and and, and uh, we're responsible not only for what we think, but also what we feel. Now, 
Um, if you put feelings in a category that's off limit, what are you what are you going to say to the sodomite? What are you going to say to the boy who thinks he's a girl? What are you going to say to the man who wants to divorce his wife because he doesn't feel loved? Oh, I know what the Bible says, but I just uh, I don't love her anymore. Falling out of love. Uh, now it's come back on with this other person, right? What do you say to that? What do you say to that? Well, I mean, we used to know what to say to that, right? I mean, people of other cultures know what to say to that. Uh, you know, if you have a man who comes up to, uh, you know, a man from a, a culture where arranged marriages are, are common, uh, and he says, hey, you know, I just need to leave my wife. Well, why do you need to leave your wife? Well, I just don't feel any love for her anymore. What is he going to tell him? Go home and love her. Well, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. I don't feel any love for her. <laughs> feelings. <laughs> Can't do anything about my feelings, right? They're just, I'm a victim of my feelings. Well, he's, what are you going to say? Go home and love her, right? Go home and love her. Well, I can't do that, right? Well, yeah, you can. It's, for, it's fairly simple. You know why we don't love people? Because we're not thankful for them anymore. You know why we don't love people? We don't see all the good things in them. Think about the list that goes on in your mind. Are you thankful for all the uh, hundreds and thousands of sacrifices that they make for you on a regular basis? Are you thankful for all the things that they do for you? Or, or does your mind naturally gravitate towards that one thing that you wish they do that they that they're not doing? What do you think about? What do you talk about? Right? Do you think that if you were to, on a regular basis, make a list of things that you're thankful for them about, that that may help you to feel love for them a little bit better? Do you think that if you would communicate that to them, that that would have any kind of effect on your feelings or your desires? Do you think that if you were to make a practice of doing that, uh, uh, that that would have any effect on what you think, what you feel, what I think it would, uh, but then that's the way that we are. And so, I mean, if you think about uh, the same thing's true with God, isn't it? So what do we think about in our relationship with God? We often think about the one thing that he takes from us that we don't want him to take, right? It's not that, hey, Lord, I'm just so thankful for the salvation you accomplished in Jesus Christ and uh, saving me for the sin debt that I can never pay. And, well, no, after he saves us, oh, we're thankful for that, and then we don't think about it anymore, right? And then we think about all the things that uh, we wish he would do that he's not quite doing on our timetable, right? And then when he, uh, and then we're mad at him for doing things that he never promised that he uh, never promised to do, right? So that one little thing that you're not going to do for me that I really want you to do, uh, that's the only thing I'm going to think about, and then I'm going to be mad at you because you didn't do what I wanted you to do, right? Well, think about if you made a practice of giving thanks to God. Think about if you made a practice of giving thanks for the other. Think about it. What if you verbalized? Um, so you change your thought about those things. You dwell on things that are true, noble, pure. And then you verbalize those things. Do you think your feelings line up? I think they would. Um, uh, but, uh, but as I said, I mean, I, I do think that we live in a society where anytime someone feels hurt, then what are we expected to do? You need to bow down and apologize, regardless of whether or not it was a misunderstanding, regardless of whether or not they uh, misheard you. I mean, you. You feel hurt, you got to apologize, and that's what everyone does. And we look and we see they didn't fix anything, right? Uh, question to ask is, do your feelings conform to the Bible? Uh, do your thoughts conform to the Scripture? What does the text say? If not, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, Third feature we see in this battle for holiness in this passage is the hope of the battle. Now, what is the hope? That's glorification. So the text says, uh, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. So as you think about the nature of the battle for holiness, you're thinking about a battle that starts in your thoughts and in, uh, in your desires. 
but then uh, this uh, battle was motivated by hope. Now, in uh, 1588, the Spanish Armada, Armada with 130 ships sailed towards England, uh, bent on depositing over 50,000 Spanish soldiers on English soil and deposing Queen Elizabeth. Now, um, before the troops could go on sh- go ashore, Spanish ships had to get past the English Navy. Now, the Spanish warships were larger and had bigger guns, but the English ships had superior commanders and greater speed and maneuverability. Uh, so the Spaniards, they knew all this when they set out. They knew that they were outgunned when they were going in, right? Um, but, um, you know, if they knew they are outgunned going in, why did they set sail to go do this? Well, um, they hoped to succeed in battle if their guns could not... Uh, so basically, how could they hope to succeed in battle if their guns could not attain a firing position? Uh, well, the Spaniards believed that God was on their side. Therefore, they hoped they hoped that the English would expose themselves to their heavy guns. They hoped that the English would foolishly engage them ship-to-ship uh, hand fighting so that many of the soldiers they had could get on board and win the day. But as we say, hope is not a plan. And so... Um, British kept their distance and shot, shot the Spanish ships to pieces, okay? The Spanish paid dearly for a vain hope. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, you learn, first of all, that misplaced hope is worthless, right? Uh, now, uh, when you think about the scriptural hope that we have, our scriptural hope is, uh, when it, you know, what... Uh, our scriptural hope is not based on assumptions that we may make about God, which may, in fact, turn out to not be true, Right? Um, now, when I did counseling I, I, uh, at this uh, at organization I did, uh, there's one particular organization I was doing counseling at, and we counseled a lot of people who were f- coming from a charismatic uh, prosperity kind of background. And so what I'd often find is that there would be a lot of counselees coming in, and they would all say the same thing. I mean, they would all just talk about how they're trusting God for this and trusting God for that. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm um, trusting God to fix my marriage, man. And I'm thinking, well, he didn't promise to fix your marriage, did he? What did he say? He said, I didn't come to uh, bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Said, Father against mother, sister against brother. Man's enemies will be those of his own household. Uh, I don't know if that's a good hope, man. I mean, it could be that the more you grow in godliness, the more your wife hates you. Are you okay with that? I mean, I, I guess that's not what they wanted to hear. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, no, but they're... Think about that. You're counseling someone. They're trusting God to fix their marriage. He may not fix it. Is that a good hope? Can you confidently rest and trust in the promise that God is going to give you a good marriage? Not really. Um, give me a give me a spouse. So many people are single. Just trusting God for a spouse, man. Well, it may, it may not be in the cards, right? Uh, trusting God for a better job. Trusting God to save my kids. Uh, God promised those things. Did he promise those things? How are you not doing the same thing the Spanish Armada is doing? Right? Did that work out well for them? If you can think of one historical example where people, if you can think of one historical example where people uh, 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 trusted God for something he didn't promise and it didn't go well, then it ought to make us examine, hey, if all these people could die, like you're talking about, uh, you're talking about 50,000 Spanish soldiers dying based on a misplaced trust that God was on their side when he wasn't. Uh, They had a stupid plan that they, they had formed that was dumb, that was fully based on a bad hope that God didn't promise, and it ended in all their deaths. So think about that, and think about the things we hope, God, we hope and trust God for. Now, um, 
Did, did God promise any of those things? He promised you to fix your marriage, to fix your spouse, give you a better paying job, save your kids? No. I don't see any promises in Scripture that those things will happen. Uh, and yet, now, when God doesn't deliver on those promises, what happens? People are angry with God, right? How could you do it? Why didn't you do this for me? Why are they angry? They're angry at God because God didn't do for them what they wanted him to do. Um, when you examine their expectations, you come to realize they're angry at God for not doing something he never promised to do. Now, whose fault is that? Now, biblical hope is different. Um, biblical hope is different than this just, I uh, hope for the best uh, or a misplaced hope that's not based on good promises. Uh, the kind of hope that Peter refers to here is uh, in, in many ways synonymous with faith in Paul. So when Peter used hope, Peter uses the word hope is, is very similar to the way Paul uses faith. And so the text says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Now, um, when you live, when you consider the Christian life, you come to see that much of the motivation we have to live the way we are called to live has to do with trusting in realities that we can't physically see. And so we hope... Uh, uh, in this passage, we're hoping fully on the grace that will be, will be brought to us in the future. Uh, so we hope in faith that it's wiser to invest in eternity uh, in particular than it is to invest in the present. We hope in faith that Jesus will come soon, considering, be be, considering it better to be found worthy at his coming than to be embarrassed by participating in sin when he comes. And so much of our hope uh, that we have scripturally is that... Um, we, we hope in realities that we can't see, that there is a God who made us, that he did provide a salvation for us in Jesus Christ, uh, that he will do what he promises to do, that it's better to live for him than it is to live, uh, pursue the proceeding, uh, what is that word, pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin, right? Uh, and so as you see, uh, this, this, uh, when, you, when you think about this kind of battle that we're fighting, it's a battle that en entails a certain kind of hope uh, and this relates to this last point, the end of the battle, the second coming. So it's, uh, the text says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, um, when Jesus Christ returns, we know that our battle for sin will be over with, don't we? Now, First John talks about this in a variety of ways. There's a variety of passages. First uh, John 2.28 says, and now little children abide in him so that when we when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so what is that saying? That's saying you're called to holiness, right? Be holy. In mind, thought, in thoughts, in affections, like in attitudes and actions, the whole of your being be have the whole of your being be devoted to God and his purposes and his priorities and uh, allow it to be conformed to his character. Uh, so uh, it's saying the same thing as First John, abide in him. What does that mean? Be holy, right? Pursue holiness. Abide in him, remain in him, so that when he appears, you may have, not have, you may have confidence and not shriek in shame before him in his coming. First John uh, 3, 2 through 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so uh, what is that saying? Well, it's saying the same thing Peter's saying, isn't it? That right now we're engaged in a battle for purity of thoughts, minds, action. Uh, so that's not specifically just talking about uh, sexual purity. It's talking about... Uh, uh, undefiled affections, undefiled thoughts, undefiled actions of all sorts. And what are undefiled, what are defiled thoughts and what are defiled uh, 
affections, and what are defiled desires? Anything that's not about the glory of God, right? So if I wake up in the morning and I, and I think to myself about all the ways that I want to serve myself and that uh, I'm the most important person in the world, and so I think about my plans for the day and they're all involved, my kingdom come, my will be done, and all the things I want to do, all the things that I want to accomplish, am I pure in heart? No, because my focus in that moment is absolutely on myself and what I want, right? Um, so this idea of holiness is much more than just uh, avoid really bad things or avoid things that other people do. Uh, the whole of your affections need to be devoted to God uh, because and we're engaged in a battle. And everyone who is engaged actively in this battle right now, who is actively purifying himself, they're going to appreciate it. When one day God comes back and that battle's over, right? I mean, there's many people who live in fear of dying. Why is that bad? Well, no, I don't want to die right now. Uh, I, I would say with Paul, I'm hard-pressed. I know that uh, there's work that needs to be done here. Uh, you know, I know that God, I'm a means of provision for my family, for my faith family. Uh, so you're divided. But uh, at the end of the day, wouldn't it be good? to see Jesus and have the battle for purity over with? Wouldn't it be good to one day not have to fight this anymore? Isn't it, uh, it, wouldn't it be nice to, when you wake up in the morning, you think about God, <laughs> assuming you sleep in heaven, which you may. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to think about God all the time, have his affections all the time, not have to fight indwelling sin anymore? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Isn't that what we're actually hoping in, that one day the battle will be over with? Uh, that one day God will return and we'll be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him. Um, in a uh, German prison camp in World War II, undiscovered by the guards, some Americans built a homemade radio. Uh, one day news came that the German high command had surrendered, ending the war. So you just picture a war camp there. Uh, there's uh, American soldiers in there. And there came news in, in one of their radios that the, war, that the Germans had surrendered. Uh, but because of a breakdown in uh, communication, the guards didn't know this. So basically, the German prison guards didn't know that the, their leaders had functionally surrendered. But the Americans were able to know because they had a radio. Okay. Uh, now, um, as word spread among the prisoners, a loud celebration broke out. For, de- for three days, they sang. Um, they waved at the guards and shared jokes over meals. They're still imprisoned. <laughs> Think about this. So they, they, they sang, they waved at the guards, they shared jokes. Now on the fourth day, they awoke to find that all the Germans had fled. Their waiting had come to an end. What does that teach us? Look, we're fighting a winning battle, aren't we? Now, what was different about their experience? Still a fight, still, I mean, still in prison, right? But the news that one day, that, that the battle was actually won and was over and that their deliverance would, was coming, that motivated them to, that changed their entire experience of, of, of uh, being in prison, didn't it? I mean, their circumstances were actually absolutely the same. Nothing different about the circumstances. But somehow, having a different perspective of it, knowing that there, there was an end in sight, uh, gave them uh, motivation to celebrate and rejoice and uh, fundamentally changed their experience. And so we know this, uh, that there will be grace revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our battle has an end point, right? It's temporary. So, I mean, if you think about the broad span of our life, whatever God gives us, 70 plus years, um, I don't know what it is nowadays, but um, whatever God gives us, 70 plus years, that's brief in light of eternity, isn't it? And so, I mean, I, I think um, 
I, I think for many, you can say, hey, where did it all go, right? Where did it all go? Um, even at my point, I can say, where did it go? <laughs> uh, now, um, so there's an end to the battle. It's short. It's light and momentary affliction. There's a biblical perspective of, of our life which says it's short, right? Make the most of it. Invest in eternity. Uh, be pure in heart. Uh, be holy as he is holy, right? But it's also true that we experience minor versions of this as well. So what does the Bible say? Resist the devil, hopefully. Isn't it discouraging? I know that many of us in our fight for holiness would say it feels impossible to turn from sin, doesn't it? It just feels impossible. And, and I know that probably one of the main reasons why people uh, continue to give in to sin over and over and over and over and over and over again is because it feels impossible. It's just discouraging. And, and every time you give in to sin, what happens? Oh, there we go again. There we go again. Just doing the same old thing. Oh, nothing's different. Just same person. Same person. Uh, why even bother to fight anymore? You know, I'm just such a wretched person. Uh, and then we mope. And then, uh, you know, instead of turning and asking God to forgive you and, and renew the fight, you know, you just mope around and say, oh, I can't possibly ask God. I can't possibly ask him for forgiveness. I can't possibly uh, speak to him, right? But what does the Bible say? Resist the devil will flee from you. What does that mean? It means even in this life it gets easier. If you make a decision to turn from sin, it gets easier even in this life. Even in this life, uh, you know, uh, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. No temptation is overtaking you, but it's common to man. God's faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, will provide a way of escape that you can bear it. Even in this life, God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us resources that we need to fight sin. Uh, he's uh, promised us that we're no longer slaves to sin, but fundamentally our identity has changed. He's given us everything we need to say no to this sin. And then functionally, when we do say no to this sin, uh, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You gain victory over it. And then it turns into something else, right? Uh, but isn't it nice to see it transition, right? Um, and I know for many of us, I mean, I, it's just the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Don't you want your, your life to be more, about more than just that one sin, whatever that is? Don't you want to move on? Get to something else. God has greater things for you. So, um, so in terms of ultimate things, we fight a short battle. In terms of the immediate experience, you know, uh, victory has been won. We're just facing a mop-up operation at this point. Uh, God has won for us a fundamental victory. And so when you think about this fight for holiness, what we ought to be thinking about is devoting ourselves and all of, all of our being uh, thoughts, minds, affections to uh, God who is more than powerful to save, uh, more than powerful to deliver us uh, and help us to live for him. Now, as you think about uh, these scriptural truths, uh, know that God knows what we're going through. God knows that um, our battle for purity doesn't come natural, but he's a good and gracious God. He's given us all the resources we need. He's given us the Holy Spirit uh, to come and to help us to reorient our thoughts, our affections, and our desires towards Him. And uh, just want to leave you with this. First Thessalonians three eleven through thirteen says, "Now may God, now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you." So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. You see, that this is a common theme, that God may establish us in holiness. And that's our prayer for this church, that God may establish us blameless before him in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the scriptures you've given us with your life, Lord. We thank you for what you've done for us. We, we, we thank you that what you command you will help us to do, Lord. We know that uh, apart from you, we can do nothing, but through you, we can bear much fruit. And I pray that you help us, help this congregation, Lord, to be fully devoted to you and everything. Uh, help us to be individuals who, uh, whose every thought is taken captive to your glory, Lord, and that we think about how good you are and how gracious you are and how loving you are towards us, Lord. And we're overflowing with thanksgiving for what you've done for us and that that would be the motivation for us to, uh, to love you because you're worthy of all worship and worthy of all praise, Lord. Help us to be a holy people so that when people come and think about our church, they would, they would uh, think about how good you are, Lord. Not that they would um, praise us for anything that we've done, Lord, but that they would praise you.